This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, I'm Charles Brandreth. Welcome to another episode of Rosebud, where memorable people share their memories. Cue the music. introduce this week's guest it's time for some of your emails and messages we do love hearing from you even if it's just to say hi or suggest a guest and we even take on board complaints not i'm pleased to say that there have been many though somebody did feel that i treated rory stewart unfairly that i was well anti-rory which i wasn't i was just fascinated by rory and if you haven't heard our rory stewart episode do listen our aim is customer satisfaction so whatever you want to say, just get in contact with us. Email hello at rosebudpodcast.com. Hello at rosebudpodcast.com. Judy Young has been in touch about another Judy. I adored your first podcast with Judy Dench. This is my first memory, and I promise this is true. It was 1952. My father was a Lincolnshire farmer, and much to my mother's disappointment, I was a tomboy. I was only happy up the farm with my dad, delivering lambs, calves, and piglets. In those days, piglets could be neutered by the farmer with a tiny penknife. I remember being in the pig shed, father nicking the baby piglet, popping out two tiny testicles, snipping them off, and throwing them to our four Jack Russell dogs. A quick squirt of purple gentian, that's an antibiotic, and off they would run, squealing away in no pain whatsoever. Well, that's easy for you to say, Judy. I've just been feeling a bit squeamish reading out your letter. Oh, dear. So, any pigs listening, um, please bear with us. We meant it in a caring way. Uh, Judy finishes, My mother was utterly horrified. She was a city girl, knowing her daughter would never behave in a ladylike way. And sadly, I never have. Well, well done, you, Judy, having the balls to tell us all about that. This week, my guest is Nicola Sturgeon, formerly the First Minister of Scotland, a controversial figure in Scotland, where she's alternately known as Wee Nicola or Bloody Nicola. In fact, when I was in Edinburgh this summer doing a show on the fringe, I used to joke that I'd kept her husband holed up in my dressing room for three whole weeks, wanting to give him a safe space. Anyway, Nicola very kindly came to my flat in Edinburgh and we had a conversation. I I hope you'll find it interesting. I wanted to get away from politics. She's been a politician since she was 17 years of age. But what's she really like? Who is she? And talking to her, I discovered that she had been, as a child, quite introspective, uh, quite shy. And yet she has become this extraordinary figure. Who knows what the future holds? I wanted to discover what the past held. I was certainly intrigued to hear about her first love. His nickname was Sparky. 
and about her marriage and about her respect, admiration and affection for the late Queen Elizabeth II. She would always just put you at your ease and very, very, very well-informed, scarily well-informed. So there'll be some surprises here. This is about going back to her first memories and trying to get a little bit under the skin of who is Nicola Sturgeon. Enjoy this. I did. Nicola, well, I want to begin by asking you simply, what is your very, very first memory? I think my very, very first memory is falling down the stairs um, in my great-grandmother's house in Dunure, a small fishing village in the west coast of Scotland near Ayr. And my memory of this house, it was called the Smiddy, and the to, to call it a spiral staircase would be a massive overstatement. It was a, a windy, it wound round. And I fell down, I must have been about three at the time. Um, but what I remember most is my grandfather gave my dad a bollocking for allowing me to fall down the stairs and take his eye off me long enough to allow it to happen. So I think that's my very first memory, but I was uninjured. And who was your dad? What was he called? My dad is called Robin. Um, he is retired now. He was an electrician. Um, and, you know, the most wonderful, attentive father uh, you could ever imagine. So a bit of injustice, I think, that he got such a hard time from my granddad. And your mother? Who is she? Uh, my mum is Joan. Um, I don't even think she was in the house at this point. Um, so, yeah. that When I told, I think, my mum some years ago, we must have been having a discussion about my early memories, and I told her that this was uh, the earliest thing that I think I can remember, as opposed to things that I've been told happened and I have convinced myself I remember. Uh, that then led to a story about another occasion where I fell down the stairs. <laughs> my, when I was born, uh, we lived for the first couple of years in, of my life in an attic of my mum's uh, aunt's house in Presswick, another uh, town in Ayrshire. And I don't remember this, but apparently I fell down the stairs in that house as well. I was in my baby walker and I tumbled down the stairs and my dad was on the scene that time as well. So I don't know, there maybe is a kind of serial pattern here, but my, my dad refuted that. Quite right. I'm sure <laughs> these things do happen. And it can happen again. I hope it doesn't happen too, too soon. I've taken to falling over. Uh, one gets to the age. Mm. And you may well, have seen President Biden here. I think it's indeed. one of his campaign tricks is to fall over in his case. Yeah, that's a... Politician of some years, I'm not sure it's the best campaign no, it's, trick. It's but not a good idea. And can you remember the earliest smells of your life? Can you remember the smells and tastes? Um, so the, I suppose the earliest smell I would uh, think of, um, my, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents lived by the sea um, in fishing village in Denure. So the smell of the sea of fish of, you know, the I can still remember, you know, the, the fishing boats coming in with the catch. Um, and so these are the smells that I would, I would uh, recall. And inside my grand's house, the smell of her, she, she was a great baker and cook. So, yeah, you'd smell the, the cake she would be baking or she was a great one for her Yorkshire puddings. So I can still smell, yeah, she made the best Yorkshire puddings in the world, actually. Um, so those are the kind of smells and, and tastes, prob yeah, probably things that my gran cooked and, and baked are the things I remember tasting. Do you have brothers and sisters? I've got one sister, a younger sister, 
and she's five years younger than me. But for the first two or three years of my life, certainly, I was the only child in the family on both sides. So I was the centre of attention, the centre of everybody's universe. And when she came into the scene, were you alarmed by that or did you welcome her? Um, I think I eventually welcomed her. I was not entirely thrilled about the prospect um, because round about the time I was told I was about to have a, a brother or a sister, we'd been having, and I remember this quite clearly, we'd been having a family discussion about possibly getting a dog. And then when it turned out my mum was pregnant with my sister, the dog was off the agenda and I was pretty upset about that. I, I did not think that having a brother or sister was a decent substitute for the dog that I had wanted. So I, I, I was a bit grudging about the little sister and the irony, of course, about wanting a dog so badly when I was young. Um, and both my grandparents had dogs, but I have developed much later in life a real fear of dogs. I'm terrified mm. of dogs now. I don't, I don't really know where it comes from. So... Yeah, maybe that's something else to blame my sister for. If we'd had a dog growing up, mm. I would never have developed that fear. I don't know. And did you go to a nursery school or what was the first school? Um, I went to primary school in Drekhorn, the village in Ayrshire I grew up in. I went to play school, as it was called uh, before then, and Sunday school on a, a Sunday. I Now, this is maybe a challenge for my earliest memory. I don't think it is. I think the falling down the stairs would have been before this. But I do remember I... I I made a, an escape bid from Sunday school one day, one Sunday morning. Um, I don't know, I must just have got bored or didn't want to be there or whatever. So I, my mum remembers it vividly because I was suddenly gone and they, I, I was found. The, the old church hall, which is still there in the village I grew up in, you come out the front door of that turn as I, I turned right and straight heading for a main road. <laughs> so my mum caught me just as I was about to, to cross the road at age three. I think oh I was wearing a little red coat at the time. Um, but I obviously decided I'd, I'd had enough of Sunday school that day, so I decided to escape from Your it. first bid for freedom. Go mm -hmm. back now to you at the play school. I remember almost, I mean, very vivid for me, was a nursery school and being in a brown, a rough brown rug. They made us roll up in these rugs mm. for a rest after lunch. And I can feel the texture of it and the smell of the wooden floor. Did you have a rest? We must have done. I don't really, I don't really remember that. I suppose I don't think I wouldn't have been in play school for an entire day yeah. or even an entire morning. I think yeah. it would be maybe for a couple of hours. So there probably wasn't much time to rest, but we must have done. We must have had snacks. And Who was your first friend? Do you remember your first friend? Uh, my first friend, uh, two friends who lived in the... Well, the first friends I really remember yeah. calling friends, uh, two girls called sisters, uh, Debbie and Karen Kelly. Um, they, when we moved uh, to the village I grew up in, we lived in a block of flats. We were upstairs, they were downstairs. Um, and Debbie was a year younger than me. Karen was about a year, year and a half older than me. So they became my best friends for you know, most of my childhood and well into my teenage years. And... Uh. For a period, probably more like sisters than friends. And what sort of what were the games you played? What were the things you we, did? We played. So we would play. Um, you know, we would play at shops. We would play at you know tag running around. Um, I was a great. I wasn't the most outgoing. I was a very introverted, shy child. I am an introverted, shy adult, believe it or not. Um, but I was never happier than when I had my nose stuck in a book. So I would have to be kind of dragged to play the games where my mum tells a story about 
me at my fifth birthday party hiding under a table reading a book when everybody else is playing games so I, I would always want to sort of stay in and read the book and I would be dragged out to Why do you think you were shy and introverted? Um, it's, it, it's just how I always was actually and I suppose I, I have been all my life actually so a lot of um, what I've had to do over the years particularly given the job I've done is very consciously overcome that I think it's just the personality I had Were I your was parents quite reserved. shy and reserved? Um, yes I think so although perhaps in different ways um, I was very bookish I, 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 you know, I, I like my own company And what was the first book you remember loving? Um, it would be Enid Blyton, the, the magic faraway tree. Yeah. My, my gran and granddad in uh, Denure, they lived in a... My, my granddad was the, the gardener in the estate house in Denure, so they, they had a, a tied house uh, tied to my, my granddad's job, but it was called the Croft, and it was it was a, a magical playground. Um, you, you would go out of the back of the Croft to a field, you'd run across the field, you'd be on the beach... Um, but that was my kid in cottage, and you know, the the house looked out to, to Ailsa Craig, the mm. uninhabited island, um, a bit west of where my, my grandparents lived, and that was in my imagination, Kiran Island, and I, of course was George the tomboy. So you know, that's I built much of my childhood games out of the books I was yeah. reading, and at that time it was the famous five. I loved Enid Blyton, mm. and later in life I got to know Enid Blyton's daughters. Oh, wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about them is they'd had two very different views of their mother. Mm. One of them believed their mother was a wonderful, warm person, mm. the kind of person we want Enid Blyton to have been, and the other said, no, she was distant, she was difficult, she exploited us and the, by writing the... It's interesting how it's really two, fascinating, two yeah. daughters, mm-hmm. um, the older one, Loved her mother unreservedly. Mm. The second one had grave reservations right. about the mother. Mm. And yet they're talking about the same person. Yeah, it's quite yeah, curious. Yeah. So you're there, you're this introverted girl. I love you at your fifth birthday, hiding <laughs> under the table, reading a good book instead of uh, being the hostess. Did you, did you have any, uh, did you have a childhood boyfriend? Who was the first? Uh, I had a childhood boyfriend. Um, it would have been, yeah, so I would probably have been... There was boys at primary school that you kind of, you know, you would talk about that he's yeah. my boyfriend today, and then the next day it would be somebody else. My first boyfriend was a boy. I'm not sure if I should name him actually. Um, his oh, nickname was Sparky. That you've told us enough about him, <laughs> Sparky. Hey, and did he live up to his name? No, his, his, his surname was Clark, so it was a kind of, oh. you know, Clark. It started off as Clarky, and then it became Sparky. So, well, I hope he was yeah. Sparky. So, how I old was he? Become, he was the same age as me. He was in the same class at school. Oh. Yeah. And and what did he have to offer? Was he good looking? He was very good looking, actually, in those days. Yeah, uh-huh. I've not seen him for many, many years. So. Well, let's hope he's good looking now. Uh, well done, Sparky. <laughs> well, let's hope he's not that good looking, because I mean, I let him go. Obviously, he was a lovely boy, actually. Apologies if you're listening to this, Sparky. You were a lovely boy. <laughs> he was a very nice boy, very gentle, very you know, kind and, and caring boy. But we probably weren't all that suited for the long term. What were you like as a child beyond being a little bit shy and retiring? What were your interests? You know, I loved spending time with, with friends. In the, the town I grew up in, the first of its kind big leisure centre opened in mid-1970s, I think. So it had a swimming pool, an ice rink, and people flocked from all over. 
uh, the, the country to it actually it was right on our doorstep so swimming was something I like doing ice skating I took up ice skating actually when I was pretty young I wasn't very good at it but figure skating lessons oh. um, and yeah one time I remember uh, Robin Cousins came wow. to do um, to do an exhibition at the Magnum uh, ice rink when we were having figure skating lessons and um, he then came and gave us a yes. I mean, he'd been an a Olympic brief lesson. Skater, he was, it was no. a big, big day in no. the, the life of the Magnum, and there was a support act with him for his exhibition. And I've not been able to find absolute proof of this, but I am ninety nine point nine percent sure that the support act was Torval and Dean before Torval and Dean were famous. Wow. Um, and yeah, that was that was really exciting. So yeah, I did ice skating for a while, and then this takes us kind of into my early teenage mm-hmm. years um, the ice rink at the Magnum had a, a disco every Saturday night called Frosty's Ice Disco so that's where I spent my Saturday nights from about I don't know 11 through to 14 maybe skating round and round and round an ice rink to disco music. I imagine given what you described that though you were quite shy and retiring you were a bit of a tomboy uh, the early boyfriend was called Sparky mm-hmm. and you could do some ice skating. You weren't teased or bullied? Um, well, mm, I, I, I did have a period in primary school of being a bit bullied by one girl in particular. Um, and I think it was because I... I think the being shy and introverted and always enjoying my own company, I kind of knew what I liked. So I, I, I'm not sure I always really fitted in with a wider group of friends but I, I always tried to and and then this particular girl and another girl in my primary school class they would one day be best friends and then the next day be sworn enemies and when they were sworn enemies you had to be quite careful whose side you ended up on because the next day they would be ganging up against you and I kind of I don't know whether it was maybe the early politician in me that I I kind of couldn't just stand back. I always ended up in the middle of this. And one of the girls in particular, when she decided that this sworn enemy one day was her best friend, the next day then decided that I was really the enemy. And so a couple of times, yeah, she she once um, actually kind of, to say she beat me up is an exaggeration, but she kind of jumped on me and sort of threw a few punches. Mm. Can you remember the first time you cried? As opposed to falling down, Probably falling down knee. the stairs. Yes, I don't but know. I, mean, I don't. I don't. Can you remember the first sort of trauma of your childhood? Um, this will not be the first time I. Obviously, it's not the first. I would have probably cried the first day I was born. But the first real trauma I remember is in so in the the block of flats we lived in when I was young. Um, Debbie and Karen lived down the stairs. Upstairs was our house, and then round the corner from us, uh, also on the upper floor was a, a couple that didn't have any children. They seemed very old to me, but they wouldn't have been very old. Uh, and again, I don't know if this is a particularly Scottish thing, calling people that are no relation to your auntie and uncle, but they were my auntie Bunty and uncle Dave. And uncle Dave, uh, one day, he was from a part of Scotland that has an annual you know, celebration, a kind of gala type thing that involves horses. And he got thrown from a horse and killed. And... Ooh. I would have been, I don't know, about six. And I just remember the shock of that. Um, and I couldn't, it would have been my first, it was my first encounter with death. And I just remember th- not being able to comprehend, not ever seeing him again. Um, but then 
that would have been not long before uh, my granddad died. I was seven when he died. And yeah, that was probably the first real trauma I remember of, you know, this larger than life figure um, suddenly not being there. And how did you cope? We just got on with it. Well, I was very, I remember feeling very angry. Um, and my poor dad actually having to deal with that when he was dealing with the loss of his father. But I'd, my granddad had, had been unwell for a while, but the doctor, his doctor said he had a bad flu. Turned out he had cancer. And by the time it was diagnosed, he, it was too far gone. And I remember being taken to the hospital to see him. I didn't know or I wouldn't have appreciated this at the time, but I was clearly been taken to the hospital to see him for the last time. And I remember vividly what he said to me, like, when I get out of here, we'll take the dogs for a long walk. So in my seven-year-old head, he was fine. He was going to be out of hospital soon and we were going to go for a walk. And then, I don't know, I think probably the following day or a couple of days later, he died. And I was, you know, I suppose in my mind, well, either he had been lying to me then or my mum and dad were lying to me now. You know, how could he be dead? I didn't even really properly understand what that meant, but he had told me he was going to be fine. So I remember feeling really angry about that and obviously just finding it difficult to process and comprehend it. Were you somebody with extremes of emotion? I mean, did you feel things, you know, passionately, yeah, you saying yeah, about yeah. anger and uh, wanting to interfere when you... I had as a child, I, 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 I had, yeah, I, I think I had a bit of a temper as a child. You know, I, I would, yeah, I, I was, one of the, I suppose, contradictions as I look back on it is I was, I was shy and introverted. Um, but it, I suppose in the, you know, the sanctuary of my immediate family, I, I was, you know, confident and outgoing and very you know, strong willed and knew what I wanted and always liked to get what I want. So I would, I would fly off the handle if I didn't get what I wanted. <laughs> so yeah, I think I had and probably expressed emotions pretty strongly. Hello, it's Giles here, and I'm excited to tell you that this series of Rosebud is sponsored by my favourite hotel in the world, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. In fact, right now, I'm talking to you directly from the famous great room of the hotel. It's vast and very beautiful. And this room is full of history. Before the great room was a banqueting hall, it was an ice rink, home to the Park Lane Ice Club, where... As a girl in the 1930s, the future Queen Elizabeth II learnt to skate. But history is not the only thing the Grosvenor House Hotel has to offer. It's one of the finest hotels in London and one of my number one places to be. You might find me sipping a cup of Earl Grey or watching the world go by from one of the sumptuous sofas in the parkroom or hosting an awards ceremony in this very room. But the thing I love most about the hotel is the incredible, warm and genuine welcome they give to every single person who comes through the door. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. And when you were a young teenager, I mean, I, when I was a young teenager, was very clear about my ambitions. Mm. I wanted to write a biography of Shakespeare. Mm. In fact, I began it when mm. I was about 11. I wanted to be a great actor, 
like Sir Laurence Olivier, who was a big star in my day, and I expected to be Prime Minister. Mm. I didn't want that particularly, but I just expected yeah. it as part of the things that I would do in my little portfolio yeah. of lifetime ambitions. But it sounds so ridiculous now when I was sort of 11 or 12. What were your, at that age, what were your so I had, I had a similar... I, which is strange for somebody who was quite shy and introverted. I always had a sense I would do something out of the ordinary. Um, I don't... You know, the, the way to describe it that sounds overly grand is almost like in a sense of destiny that I would, you know, do something. In terms of how that translated into the things I wanted to do, from I had two things that I always said I wanted to do. One from somebody who read all the time was understandable. I, I wanted to write books. And, mm. and back then, I thought that would be children's books because that was my point of reference. And the other thing, which is not understandable because I didn't know anybody who did this. I probably wouldn't really have known what it meant. And my mum says she first remembers me saying this when I was about five. I wanted to be a lawyer. Oh. And I, I studied law at university. I became a lawyer. So all through my childhood, that's one of the, and probably the thing I thought I would. I flitted a little bit. My uncle was a journalist. Um, so I flitted a little bit with, with journalism. I became very interested in politics in my kind of early to mid-teens I didn't, and back then, you know, I, I became involved with the SNP. Back then, there wasn't a Scottish Parliament. So I don't think I ever thought I would end up in politics. With the lawyer thing, mm. had you heard of any famous lawyers? Was it because when, when I went through a phase mm. wanting to be a lawyer, it was partly because my father and my grandfather had been lawyers mm. and I'd been brought up on famous cases, you mm. know, murders, yeah. where there'd be wonderful cross-examinations. And there was a book I read called The Art of the Advocate. Uh, which was contained lots mm. of these trials. Mm. I mean, had you heard of famous cases? I mean, did you? No, 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 not at five. I don't imagine. No, but I mean, and it's a funny was, thing to want to be. Yeah, to be no. Lawyer. So I, I don't know. I, later on, I became fascinated by, you know, television portrayals of lawyers, yeah. and and I, I was the first person in my family to go to university. So I had no lawyers in my family. I didn't know anybody who'd, who'd been a lawyer. So where that came from. I must have heard about it somewhere. It was probably the kind of thing I just said when I was a kid without knowing what it meant and then being quite bloody-minded, having said it, I had to see it through or something. I don't know. But the interesting thing politics came to your life because when I was 11, that was 1959, it was the Harold Macmillan, mm. you've never had it so good election yeah. before your time, a long time before your time. But I was 11 and I was the candidate and we had a mock election at school. Um so I know it's possible to be interested in politics at that age, and you were, but, mm. but why? Why do you think? I didn't grow up in a political household. I, I don't remember politics being spoken about around the dinner table. And I probably didn't really consciously become interested in politics until I was maybe you know, 12, 13. And that grew as I went through secondary school. The reason, I, I guess Did you I, have heroes or heroines who you sort of read about in the papers or saw on television you thought... Not really. Yeah. Um, you know, Thatcher was Prime Minister at that point. And I've said this before and people take it the wrong way sometimes. If, if there was somebody who motivated me into politics, it was probably her, but not because I wanted to be like her, but because she was, you know, I, I would, at that point it was in... You know, the, the 80s, deindustrialization, the kind of, I grew up in a sort of former mining village. You know, there was a lot of economic desolation and, and destruction around me. Unemployment was very high when I was growing up. Um, you know, there was a sense, and I remember this very 
clearly, perhaps one of the reasons I was so determined and my mum and dad were so determined I would go to university, there was almost a sense of hopelessness in the people I was growing up around that, you know, you would leave school a YTS and then the dole would be what lay ahead of you. I remember a very, very distinct fear I had. It never happened to my dad but having this fear and people around me having this fear that if your dad lost his job, he would never get another one. And so that was, you know, it was Margaret Thatcher that was doing all this. And and so that sparked, a, I suppose it came from quite a negative place. I, I wanted to rebel against all of this. And growing up in the West of Scotland, anywhere in Scotland, I suppose the added dimension to this was, yeah, we didn't vote for her. Why, why are we having to suffer this government that's doing so much damage when Scotland didn't vote for her, and I suppose that's where my independence support Were you intrigued with the fact that she was the first female So I remember, yeah, I I think I was, you know, I thought that was important, and I thought that was a good thing. Mm. I just wished it was somebody who I could... I remember being quite, I suppose, disappointed that I couldn't be full square behind the first woman to be Prime Minister. Um... But yeah, I was conscious that that was an important thing. In retrospect, given some of the clippings, mm-hmm. and I can't say that I can believe all of the clippings that I've read about you, you appear to have said some, uh, some pretty rough things about Margaret Thatcher in your time, that as it were, you almost had a hatred for her. Given that you, in later mm-hmm. life, also have been on the receiving end of people's hostility, do you now think, in fact... Uh, what you had was a, a difference of view with her about the way to do things rather than her being an evil human being. I don't think I've ever described her as an evil human being. I, if I've, uh, yeah, I possibly have in my younger days used the word hatred. I, it's not a word I, I do use. and It's, it's not an emotion I, I like to, to feel, so I certainly wouldn't use that now. But yes, it was a difference of opinion, a very, very mm-hmm. acute difference of opinion. But I've been describing it anytime I've talked about Margaret Thatcher I've been describing my feelings for her from the perspective of a teenager whose community was being torn apart by her policies friends whose father's jobs were being as I saw it at the time no, I, I understand that taken away completely. so that's that's where that kind of visceral feeling what I'm really asking now is that you sure. having been a first absolutely, minister absolutely. she was a prime minister yeah. much attacked and vilified absolutely. you have now since been a first minister yeah. much attacked and vilified do you now in retrospect have some fellow feeling oh yeah, oh, yeah or, or, yes or at least yes. understanding of what maybe she went through and how extraordinarily resilient she needed to be absolutely um and so I think having done the job I've done of course it gives you a completely different perspective on what it is like to to be in these positions and understand some of the understand a lot of the challenge and the you know the, the decisions you have to take and the the impossibility with any decision of keeping everybody happy and and you know, I think particularly having gone through the covid experience the the weight of the impact of some of the decisions you're taking so absolutely I I do I, I suppose even now looking back on it um you know Thatcher Again, I suppose I'm, I'm still seeing this through the eyes of the teenager. She didn't seem to me to demonstrate very much empathy for 
the impact of the decisions. Um, it was kind of, well, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, Did like you ever lump meet her? Um, no, I didn't. Uh, uh, ever I think she would have enjoyed a real ding-dong with you. She, I, I'm, I'm, she, was quite, she was quite good. I mean, if you'd met her when you were a student, I, she, would have, she would have enjoyed, she would have had fun having the I, debate. I'm sure, and she would probably have torn me apart, you know. No, um, not necessarily. But, uh, but she would have, yeah, been, uh, she would have yeah. engaged. Yeah. In the, she enjoyed yeah. the argument of it. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I suppose, and, and this is not me, working my way around to saying yeah I actually have always a secret respect for Margaret Thatcher because that would not be true <laughs> but but yeah you do I suppose looking at politics now and I suppose the lack of political leaders who really know what they stand for and are prepared to you know stand up for the, the things that they believe in and stand for you look at people like her and think well okay I disagreed with almost everything she she did and stood for but you know you knew where you were with her, whether that was a good place or not. And there was something about the type of politician and the type of political leader from her day that she definitely was was one of that perhaps we could do with a bit more of. Go back to your teenage years. Can you remember your first kiss? That would have been Sparky, I think, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. so oh, well I think, done, well I'm, done I'm, Sparky. If, if it wasn't Sparky, then whoever it was was Can not I very say, memorable. To, to have had, your, <laughs> to have had Sparky, a Sparky as honestly. a first kiss is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I mean, if it wasn't, let's pretend it was Sparky. My yeah. first kiss was Sparky. Yeah, um, I'm just, yeah, Sparky. Can, can you remember your first proper love affair, is what I'm really saying, love relationship, as opposed to boyfriend, well, girlfriend? Well, Sparky, Sparky was... You went out for a year or two, did we you? We went out for a... We went out on more than one, so there was a couple of different pieces we went out, and I think particularly the second time, yeah, it was when I, put it this way, and it broke up, and I don't remember exactly how it broke up, I remember being upset by that, so that would have been, I wouldn't describe it as my proper love affair, uh, I, I suppose that would have been um, a guy I got to know actually when I first joined the SNP, and we were together for uh, a fair amount of time. Okay, well, let's, before we get to that, you... you I'm leave, not sure we're going to go too far No, no, don't that. worry. Don't worry. <laughs> you can show me the photographs if you want to. Um, we'll put them on the website. Now, you leave school with what qualifications? And you go to university, and what do you do? I left school with a clutch of hires. Um, I needed a certain, certain grades to get to Glasgow University to study law, which is what I wanted to do. And you pleased you went to Glasgow? You didn't think um, of applying anywhere else? So if I look back on it now, there is there is part of me regrets not whether I'd have got into Oxford or Cambridge, I don't know, but I certainly was clever enough to, to have a go, I think. But it's a, I guess that's a feature of, of my background. I was the first person in my family to go to university. So from that perspective, going to Glasgow was a big thing. I see it, perhaps, Glasgow's a great university, incidentally, one of the top universities in the world. But yeah, that's, I guess, a feature of the background I came from that saw Glasgow not as me compromising and perhaps not pushing myself as hard as I could, but actually going much further than most people from my background would ever have dreamed of. Can you remember your first day there? Did you feel, I mean, I remember my first day at university feeling quite bewildered and lost. My first term at university, I look back on that and at the time I wasn't sure I would last beyond the first term I just remember um, feeling intimidated by to be blunt the privately educated kids around me they just seemed more confident they were more confident they they seemed and this may be (laughs) 
sort of uh, just a memory that is false, but they seemed physically bigger and I just assumed they were cleverer. And I just remember thinking, ah, this is not for me. I don't belong here. I'd love to think I belonged here, but, you know, I don't. And I've got to stick it out for a period, but you know, I'll get to Christmas and then we'll see. And what changed it for me was the Christmas exams when I did really well and not all of the private school kids did really well. Oh. And something clicked in my mind was that actually how you do here is down to you. You're not any less good than these people around you. So if you work hard enough, you can be okay and you can you can manage to do it. So that's what changed. And what was your first political moment? Can you remember it? I mean, I remember taking part in a, a competition at school um, and making a speech about road traffic accidents, but I won the prize. And I thought, yes, I'm going to be the Minister of Transport. Because I thought, <laughs> this is so good. I, I, I've mastered this. I mean, was there a, a breakout moment for you? What was um, your first political moment? So my first political action was joining the SNP. Um, I pitched up at the on the doorstep of the local SNP candidate in the 1987 general election and asked her to help. And how I found the courage to do that is still a mystery to and me. And how old were you at the time? I would be, so that was just, I'd just be short of my 17th birthday. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was it. The, fir- it. the first political demonstration I went on was, uh, the, it was in Glasgow, Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday. Mm-hmm. It was a free Nelson Mandela um, march and demonstration through, through Glasgow. And he was obviously a heroic figure. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And were there, did you have heroes in the cause of um, of Scottish nationalism too? Were there? Yeah, so people like Winnie Ewing, Margot yeah. MacDonald. Who was the, the first of these figures that you met, the first major political figure? Um, the first met? one I would have met um, outside my own immediate locality would have been Alex Salmond, I would think. Um, I met him... Uh, actually, at the freshers week when I started university, um, I had already been... Involved, you know, that was after I campaigned in the 1987 general election, uh, which was the election he was first elected in. And but I met him, I think, for the first time, or certainly the first time that I would have had a proper conversation with him when he came to speak at a, a meeting at Freshers Week when I started university. Mm. And you were struck by, I mean, I, I knew him because I was mm. an MP at the same time. Uh, and he was both amusing and charismatic. Mm. Mm. And you, I mean, is he quite a bit older than you? He would be a bit older. Uh, oh, he is um, a lot older than me. Yeah, Alec <laughs> she is. She says uh, <laughs> firmly, yes, very good. Um, yeah, Alec is, uh, let me get this right. Uh, he's about 16 years older than me, oh, I think, yeah. So he's much older. Mm-hmm. And he became, for a while, your sort of lodestar. He no, was, absolutely. He was, yeah, absolutely. He was somebody, you know, back then I, I looked up to, he. He was somebody that from a very early age, when I was very young, he started to mentor effectively, encourage and, and mentor and, and coach a little bit in politics. Then obviously we, we became uh, closer as the leader and I was his deputy leader. And what did you learn from him? What's, what's the best of him that you can oh, I, I, learned, I mean, I learned loads from him. I, I learned about the art of, of campaigning, 
he taught me a lot about how to engage with mm. people in a way that you know you could sort of have not just a political argument with, but actually sort of engage with them on a human yeah. level. And why did it, why did you fall out? I mean, I, I understand you've fallen out. Is that how long do we? Have? Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, look, I mean, you know, well, we don't need to go into that. You, but we don't need to get. That's all public knowledge. Um, he was accused of certain things, and oh, it's that know. sort of thing. It yeah. didn't fall out at a personal level. It's because of his heritage. The baggage that he comes with. I don't know. Uh, enough no, about we, this. So we, we have put it in human we, we terms. We are no longer. We, we are no longer uh, on speaking terms. Oh my mm. gosh! Mm. Are there other people you're no longer on speaking terms with? Mm, Who's the first? I, mean, I don't think I. A, my sister occasionally was, would say, "Oh, I'm on non-speaks." In our family, had a non-speaks. If I ever tried not to speak to my sister, it just wouldn't work because yeah. she would just phone me up and rant at me. Yeah. Be, I mean, I don't think there's anyone I wouldn't speak to. Well, actually, apart from Mr. Putin, but I mean, uh, no, I, I, I mean that, that's a, that's a turn of phrase there that yes. I have used. Uh, we are, you know, we, we we don't communicate anymore. Um, but no, I, I'm genuinely a pretty easygoing person yeah. to go on with. So, what is the first bit of wisdom that you think you learned as a political animal? So I suppose I learned a little bit of this from Alec, but more from, from Winnie, um, is that when you're out campaigning, you think that what you're doing and what you're thinking and what you're arguing and what you think is the most important thing is the most important thing. And Winnie taught me that when you, you know, chap somebody's door or you stop somebody in the street with a leaflet or try to, you know, what you're thinking about at that moment in time is unlikely to be the most important thing in their mind. They'll be worrying about, you know, what the what's worrying them at work or their children or what they're making for their tea that night. And so if you want to get anywhere with them in terms of a political argument, you've got to meet them where they are. And so never, you know, stand in somebody's doorstep and when they open the door immediately launch into please vote for me for this reason, you know, talk to them about their garden or their yeah. Can you remember your, or something? your first political disaster, the first, when you were a young campaigner, the first time it went wrong for you? <laughs> this, this won't be the first time it went wrong. It probably went wrong many times before this, but there was one horrible uh, canvassing experience that I still cringe when I think about it. It's a, a housing estate not far from where I grew up in Ayrshire. And the, the design of the houses meant that it was always a bit, confusing as to what was the front door and what was the back door. Um, anyway, with a colleague uh, who was campaigning with me, we went to chap the door of this house. Uh, this woman came to the door and she was uh, very upset and said, we've just had a family funeral, we're back here, it's really not a good time, please go away. And I don't like the SNP anyway, but please go away, we're, we're, in, we're grieving, we're in mourning. So very sorry and we went away anyway the design of the house is really difficult so we'd gone round and thought we were going to another house instead we went to the back door of the oh same God. house and knocked it again oh and no. the same woman came to oh the God. door and yeah wasn't quite so polite and your first election was when? I stood in the 1992 general election when I was I was the youngest candidate in the, the UK at the time. I was mm. I was twenty one. Uh, I'd 
was just about to be 22 by the time the election came around. I and you stood in the general election? I stood in the general election. Could, well, I stood in the general election then. And that next was, did you win? Yeah, I won. I, yeah, I, didn't. I won. Well, that's a relief. I got one thing <laughs> over you. I didn't. No, I, I, and I'm still pacing myself about being Prime Minister. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, I mean, well, I mean, well, you, you may come back as the, Prime Minister. The, 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 the pace at which Prime Ministers are changing, I wouldn't bet against uh, you being absolutely. Prime Minister and also, by the time I've, this is broadcast. Uh, it's... Absolutely possible, <laughs> and it may be a government of all the talents. So play your cards right, Nicola. Well, they could be in terms could of the UK government. We could do with a government of any talent, yeah. but that's another matter. <laughs> so that first election, where were you the candidate? At Glasgow Shettleston against uh, an MP, Labour MP, who you will probably recall, David Marshall. Yeah, yeah. And I was I was twenty one and a half by the time the election came around. I must have just. Yeah, I just must have been such an irritant to him. You know, here's this guy who, you know, he'd been in politics for a while. Mm. And I just went round. And my, the, the thing, I had a loudspeaker that I just basically went round and shouted through. And I remember shouting at him in the street, you're past your sell-by date, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this sort of precocious. The loud hailers do help, don't they? Yeah. But yeah. I, I remember a candidate during the one of the European elections who was marvellous on the loud hailer, but when we got to, he was a European candidate, he was a Conservative, when we got to anywhere to stop, he wouldn't get out of the coach, he wouldn't get out of the battle bus. He was too nervous to actually <laughs> meet people in the street. He loved the sound of his own voice, yeah. beaming, booming. Yeah, there are, there are campaigners to this day who, who much prefer sitting in a car and, you know, shouting yeah. through a loud hailer than actually talking to people properly. Well, it can be, I mean, my daughter stood at the last general election, I remember at a, uh, not a winnable seat um, against the leader of the Liberal Democrats. And I remember canvassing for her and going to the front door of somebody putting out the leaflet and I said, please vote for my daughter. And he said, well, what's she got to offer? Oh, God. I said, um, integrity and intelligence. And he peered at me and he said, are you sure she's your daughter? <laughs> Did you have any encounters like that? Oh, yeah. Uh, th th so many funny, at the time, cringy encounters. Yeah. I, I remember... This is not actually that long ago. Um, knocking a door and a woman coming to the door and <laughs> chatting away. She was, I think, from memory, she was quite supportive, but she said, my husband's always wanted to meet you. Come in, come in. So I come into the house expecting to be taken into the, the lounge to meet her husband. <laughs> she said, he's in the bath. <laughs> so I thankfully didn't have to go right into the bathroom, but the door was ajar and I had to speak to this guy through the door as I, all I could hear was a splashing. <laughs> anyway, I think he voted for me. Can you remember the first time you were recognised in the street? Um, I don't remember the first time because it, that kind of thing probably starts to happen gradually. But it's the first, it, it, it's going back quite a while when people would, they'd, they'd recognise that they recognised me without necessarily immediately known who I was and that would be probably around the time of the, the 1997 general election um, and that would gradually so people would and now um, now I'm looking forward to going back to a point where not everybody recognises me in the street when did no no that's not true <laughs> just coming no here I to, am looking uh, coming forward to that today, point today people were wanting <laughs> selfies with you uh, can you remember when you first felt hostility and dislike? I mean, I know, I, I, oh, yeah. I mean, I was a boy, 
I thought I was golden, and I, because I was brought up as a golden boy. Yeah. But gradually over the years, I've come to realise that I irritate a lot of people. But I don't think they dislike me. I think they find me yeah. irritating. Whereas I've found that people either like you or they actively dislike you. So there must be that some people have hostility towards you, much as maybe you felt uh, yeah. towards Mrs Thatcher. So I, I, when did I you first become conscious of I experienced that. So remember, I joined the SNP um, in, what, 1987, at a time when the SNP was, I, I remember the first you know, meeting, SNP meeting I went to and there was great jubilation because we'd, for the first time in months, gone into double figures in the opinion polls. We were pretty fringe politically then. So, and I grew up in a very strongly Labour area. So campaigning for the SNP when I was first doing it generated a lot of hostility all the time. You'd, you'd be shouted at in the street, you'd get leaflets, you know, push back at you. Um, I've had people back then, you know, I'd put a leaflet through their door and they'd open the door and they'd run down the path after you to give you it back or rip it up in front of your your face. So I, I encountered that actually at a very early stage of politics. and But that developed, I think, in me, a resilience and a, an ability to come back and, and carry on, notwithstanding that. Actually, for me and for the SNP, the, the years of you know, enjoying mass support and, you know, sort of political adulation came much later on. And in recent times, now you're a longer first mm. minister and you've had faced all this mm. flack, how have you coped with that? Do you cope with it well? Are you... I, I'm still standing, so I must cope with it reasonably well. I mean, you know, it's... I think having... Going from being first minister, and I was first minister for, you know, the best part of a decade... I was deputy first minister for the best part of a decade before that. So I've been in frontline politics for a, a while. I think, you know, that any transition out of that is going to be challenging and, and difficult. And I've experienced what anybody would experience going through that of, you know, <laughs> suddenly waking up in the morning and wondering, you know, where your diary for the day is and having to work out what you're doing yourself. And on top of of all of that, obviously, all, all the other stuff that's been swelling around. So it's been, you know, probably, yeah, one of the most challenging periods in my life. Um, but I, I've got ways of coping. I, I've got a, a, a very deep inner resilience, deeper than I thought it was. I think I've got a, a nucleus of very good friends who've, you know, carried me through, particularly the last few months. Um, and yeah, I still have the ability to hide under the table and lose myself in a, a good book and you know you know my experience the overwhelming thing I take away from it is is just the kindness of the vast majority of the population very very few people actually in the whole sweep of it ever say anything nasty to your face they might not like you and not vote for you but the vast majority of people I've encountered in my time in politics have been kind and polite and charming and lovely and that's still the case now when you next meet tony blair ask him to show you something in his wallet mm. you may know this story in his wallet he keeps a, a piece of paper which says stay standing up mm. and when he became prime minister he showed me this piece of paper he said the security people said to him please whatever you do stay standing up we can then see you and we can protect you if you're attacked uh, and he kept this little piece of paper that said mm. the, the, the police officer, whoever it was, security people, gave him the piece of paper saying, simply said, stay standing up. And he kept this. And over the years, he said, actually, I've decided this is the rule. Stay standing up. Because most things blow over in 24 hours mm. or a week. Or and a even month. the things that don't will pass. Yeah. And, and yeah, that is, and I've probably learned that um, 
at, at various points throughout my time in politics, certainly during COVID, you know, just every day, just getting up and getting on with it. And I'm not sure I've always, um, I've always stuck by the kind of security advice. I've, I've always had a habit um, at campaigning of crouching down to talk to kids and stuff. So I've probably driven the security people around me crazy doing that. Well, I've been out <laughs> canvassing with um, Boris Johnson, you know, and he, well, pats, he pats the children. In the, in the old days, yeah. we used to kiss babies. Probably try to work out whether they're his well, or exactly, not. Exactly, <laughs> that is the joke. He pats them on the head just in case one of them turns yeah. out to be his. Yes. We haven't touched on, we've talked about your first boyfriend, mm-hmm. Sparky, but your first husband, who is still your husband. <laughs> I've only had one husband only, so well, far. You never, you never know. Uh, you, and, and who is he and how did that uh, come out? Give us the, your first encounter. Peter, your first I had a long-term s- relationship where I lived with a guy, but we, we never got married, so I suppose... You know, I've I've had, uh, but Peter, we met through the SNP. We're still married, um, and yeah, we uh, will be married for a long time to come. Can you remember your first look at him, though? Can you remember the, um, we the met, first moment? So of we met him? many years before we were together. We we met um, on a a young Scottish nationalist weekend. Uh, away weekend somewhere up in the north of Scotland and I first met him there but we didn't get together he was with somebody else I was with somebody else we didn't get together for many years after that you don't have children no is that a regret for you um I had a miscarriage um in 2010 um I, I I've never had a I I spoke eventually I didn't speak about it at the time but a few years later I spoke about the miscarriage because you know for a woman in politics who doesn't have children, you get asked that question a lot. And I always made the observation that Alex Salmon doesn't have children. Mm. I don't think he's ever been asked that question because he's a man. Why would he be asked that question? And the reason I spoke out about it was to sort of make the point that, and this is not me having a dick at you, that que- is it a regret. It's, it's a very simple question that doesn't have a simple answer. There have been times in my life where I've not wanted kids. There have been other times where I thought, yeah, it might be nice then there was a period where, yep, we decided we did and it didn't happen. And all of these things can be true. Is it a regret? If I look, I wish I hadn't had that miscarriage. I wish that, you know, little, I've always thought it was a girl. I have no idea, but I always describe the, the child I lost as, as she. She would be uh, in her early teens now, probably causing me all sorts of grief. Um, so yeah, I wish that hadn't happened. I'm not, I don't, I'm not somebody who is consumed by regret and not having kids. Um, on balance, yeah, it would have been nice if it had happened, but for huge parts of my life, it wasn't a big priority for me. What are your regrets, if you have any? Um, there's lots of things I, I regret. You know, I'm going to say the obvious political thing here. I'm, I, I regret being leader of the SNP and not leading the country that final, you know, part of the journey to to becoming independent and you know Scotland then being an independent part of the British Isles um I regret that I you know I I regret a lot of the time that I I've devoted so much of my life to politics and I I don't regret that I don't consider it a sacrifice but you do put other things on the back burner um having kids is maybe one of them so by the time I came to yeah, tried to do that. It proved to be too late. I regret all the times I've, you know, not put family first. I, I have a, a niece and, and four nephews, but my youngest niece and youngest nephew have both just turned seventeen. They were less than a year old when I entered government, and there's lots of 
their lives that I've missed. And so I, I regret some of that. Um, they're learning to drive now, and I am now only learning to drive as well. Oh. And we've got this, they're desperate to pass their test before I do, and I wouldn't bet against them. That'll be a new first for you. Now you, are, in this conversation, which is all about firsts, you are our first first minister, so that's exciting for us as a first. Mm-hmm. What of your time as first minister, what for you is the magic moment? Was there a personal moment, somebody that you met that was a fabulous first encounter? I mean, I remember a first encounter with Nelson Mandela. Mm. I remember being in a room with Desmond Tutu in South Africa and feeling the sunshine that came out of this Mm. person and then discovering that his own life had been quite difficult. Mm. And yet he managed to exude this extraordinary energy and positivity. In your time as First Minister, you must have met so many people. Was there one that sort of slightly blew you away or appalled you? So I've, I've met lots of the great and the good, yeah. and some of them stick in my mind. I, you know, met uh, a couple of years ago for the first time Hillary Clinton, for example. Mm. Somebody I've, you know, from a, you know, female perspective in particular, you know, admired and looked up to. Think she's been terribly, no doubt, made lots of mistakes herself, as we all do, but has been terribly treated. And to be able to sit down with her over a glass of wine and share some of these experiences was really There was a fellow was feeling, really was good. there? Yeah, the ab- ab- absolutely. I will ask you about one famous person, Elizabeth II, who we now we know yeah. what her view would be, not that she would express it publicly, but her view on uh, an independent Scotland might be. What was she like with you? Was She, she was wonderful. No- yeah. Um, and those, in- I, I consider myself, as First Minister, you know, you don't have a weekly audience with uh, the, the Queen or now King is... Prime Ministers do, but I would have a private audience with her twice a year. Um, once in the summer when she came to Holyrood and then uh, round about uh, the autumn in Balmoral. And those were, you know, I've considered myself very privileged to have had those in total several hours of private what, time. What, what was she like? Was she, she was incredibly and- warm, chatty. She would always just put you at your ease and sometimes, and very, very, very well-informed, scarily well-informed, like one of the encounters where I would stress in advance about, do I know everything that's happened in Scotland over the last 48 hours? Because she will, and she will ask you about it. And not in a sort of interrogating you, but she'll comment. So I, I used to make sure I was absolutely on top of, not just the great you know affairs of state, but you know, things that had been happening in the communities around Balmoral, for example. Um, so well informed. And the the great thing about these discussions is that they would go from, you know, talking about the here and now, the things she she liked a bit of gossip. She liked to hear what was happening in the political world, you know, and so she would ask me things about things that she'd read in the papers and what was the real story here. Um, but they would go from that to her reflecting on her audiences with Churchill and, uh, you know, meeting people at Mandela. And just, it was incredible, these discussions were very, very special. She had a real respect for Mandela, didn't she? Yeah, I think absolutely. Because, because of him emerging from that 27 yeah. years without rancour. Yeah, yeah. She, she was very much yeah. not for having rancour. Okay, mm-hmm. we've almost finished. Uh, two quick more things. What are your hopes for the future? What are your first hopes as a former First Minister? What, is your, what are your hopes at a personal level? We Do you know, know I, what, I'm not sure I'm ever going to achieve it. And, and I don't mean to take away from, it's been a privilege to you know, be able to walk down a street and talk to lots of people you would never otherwise talk to because they recognise you. But I, I do crave a bit of privacy and anonymity. I'm enjoying being able to spend more time with my family and make up a bit for 
lost time and lost family occasions. And just without sounding naive, because you can't suddenly go from being first minister to a normal private person, but just enjoying a bit more of a normal life. I When I said I was standing down, I I kind of articulated something in this way and it, it is what I really feel. I, I, I started out in politics at 18. You know, I've been in parliament since I was 29. I've been in government since I was 37. I spent all of my life being Nicola the politician and I just want to spend a bit of time being Nicola the person. Oh. I got it. What is the message you want to say to the one niece and several nephews? What what you what have you learnt all your life? What are you going to share with them? Your first message from the first. And what what I've always what I've always tried to tell them all of their lives is is believe in yourself and don't let people around you tell you that you can't do whatever it is that you dream of doing. Um, if I had listened to some of the people around me at school, I would never have gone on to do what I've done in, in my life, university, be a lawyer, certainly not be a politician and be first minister. So follow your dreams and, and believe in yourself. And that is probably more of an important message for my niece than it is for my nephews. It's important for them. But boys tend to have that instilled in them much more from an earlier age, much more naturally than girls do, even now. Well, you're my kind of girl. Thank you very much indeed. I've waited all my life to hear you say that, James. Yeah, well, exactly. I'm the poor man sparking. (laughs) Here I am, puckering up, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Well, for me, that was a memorable conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for listening to Rosebud this week. We love knowing you're there and we love hearing from you. So do keep in touch. Keep listening and keep recommending us, please, to friends and family. You've also been getting in touch on Twitter. I think it's called X now. I'm going to send a tweet to Elon Musk about that. And on Insta. At Susie Glitter One has written on Twitter. Many of us are loving it. Such light relief from all the madness going on in the world at the moment. Keep it coming. Thanks, Susie. We will. Uh, Finn Cullen has been in touch. At Finn Cullen. Rosebud is my current end-of-the-week treat for myself. Something to mark the end of the working week and the start of my free time. Excellent. Oh, and Ian Dale. Yes, the Ian Dale. At Ian Dale, the great broadcaster, great podcaster. He tweeted, listening to this delightful Giles podcast with Miriam Margolis. She was booked to do one with me, but cancelled. Gutted. Oh, it's rather nice. Um, Well, Ian Dale, I do listen to his podcasts. I'm thrilled that he listens to ours. And if you've enjoyed Rosebud, do spread the word. That's the way it works. On Twitter and on Insta, you'll find us at the Rosebud pod. That's Rosebud for this week. There'll be more next week. Meanwhile, enjoy your memories. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard.